From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. Revolutions like social movements are made by the collective efforts of those who, in the best of circumstances, bridge national, racial, and other divides to find common cause with each other. As scholar Christina Heatherton notes, such a fortuitous convergence took place around the Mexican Revolution, forging unusual alliances amongst radicals from far-flung backgrounds and orientations. Heatherton explores that period in her book, Arise, Global Radicalism in the Era of the Mexican Revolution, which is published by the University of California Press, and which takes its name from the first word of the anthem, the Internationale. She's Elting Associate Professor of American Studies and Human Rights at Trinity College and co-editor of Policing the Planet, Why the Policing Crisis Led to Black Lives Matter. To set the stage for our conversation, Christina, how would you characterize the form that capitalism took in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, bearing in mind, as you note, that bearing in mind, as you say, bearing bearing in mind, as you say, that it varied widely between places? Oh, see, now that's an against the grain question. I really appreciate that. <laughs> um, something very interesting happens to the global capitalist system in the late 19th century uh, into the early 20th century. Du Bois, I think, offers one of the best overviews of its evolution. What we're seeing in the early 19th century is the the bourgeois revolutions, the overthrowing of absolutism, the, the overthrowing of, of monarchies and the, you know, the, the vast expansion of the powers of the bourgeoisie. And in a few of his writings in, in 1914 and 1915, um, Du Bois talks about a new regime coming into power that presents itself as more democratized, right? He says it's no more just the divine right of kings to uh, be the controllers of wealth. Instead, he, he describes a, a kind of democratic despotism wherein financiers have more opportunities to invest in the world uh, and ostensibly, this is what Du Bois is interesting in, ostensibly those gains are more democratized. It's as if the regular working man has as much opportunity to share the spoils of what Du Bois calls the new imperialism as any Rockefeller or Carnegie um, you know, any, any great capitalist of, you know, what becomes the Gilded Age. But what I think so interesting about taking Du Bois's lead to think about this period is it gives us a real sense of how a certain kind of subjectivity came into place, right? Du Bois is interested in how the specific subset of interest of financiers in this period became generalized, became represented as the general interest. And for Du Bois, this happened very keenly along the color line. The idea that uh, people around the world, and, and as you said, we can, we can talk about how this happens differently in different places, but by and large, this idea that you could take on the kind of racisms and chauvinisms and colonial mentalities to look at the world as sites of potential investments, that, you know, this had a generalizable feature. And so, you know, for me, I think about this period, this period of the new imperialism, this period that becomes the era of the Mexican Revolution, is essential for understanding the struggles, uh, revolutionary struggles that would happen in the early 20th century. I'm curious how you see the connection between that kind of globalizing capital accumulation and new imperialism, and at the same time, the emergence of a revolutionary internationalism as a sort of countervailing force. Did one sort of spring naturally out of the other, or is it more complicated than that? Well, let me answer the question this way. I, I focus on this period as the era of the Mexican Revolution because I'm really trying to center Mexico and the political transformations of the world uh, in uh, you know the late 
19th into the early 20th century, and I'm also extremely interested in a kind of overlooked influence of the Mexican Revolution on uh, internationalist thinking. So let me just say a few things about it. First, you know, uh, drawing on a number of scholars, including Gilbert Gonzalez, uh, you know, I'm very compelled by this idea that uh, Mexico was annexed twice over, first territorially and secondly uh, geoeconomically, which is to say that in 1848 with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, the U.S. comes to annex a third of Mexico's territory. What's really interesting is in the aftermath of that, U.S. investors and speculators become uh, uh, begin a, a dramatic, concentrated effort to invest in the remaining territory. And so I think that there's something very interesting in thinking about the forms that particularly uh, imperialism took in Mexico in this period that gives us a sense of what's happening to capital in, in this period. So what you see in Mexico is uh, something that's happening to a lot of countries. There's, you know, countries are pulled into the, the uh, you know, what Friedrich Katz calls the frenetic pull of uh, the modern economy in the late 19th century. Uh, there's mass uh, uh, investments in um, uh, commercial agriculture, in uh, mining, in, in different extractive industries. Uh, and these, you know, consequently produce a, a massive transformation in the mode of production. You have people who, you know, for generations had um, been involved in subsistence agriculture, uh, you know, peasant farming, who are suddenly thrown off their land, dispossessed, and, you know, in various ways coerced into, uh, into these new economies. So in Mexico, you see, um, you know, almost 70% of the peasantry in the country thrown into, um, you know, thrown off their land and being forced to work in, in haciendas or being forced to work in cities and factories and mines. So, I mean, part of the part of the argument I'm making is that, you know, I mean, in the tradition of social history, capitalism produces its own negations. And I think there's a fascinating way to think about the 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 chaos, uh, the the chaos that these transformations produce in people. How, uh, you know, it forces people to move, to migrate. I mean, the whole book follows people on ships, uh, on trains, in prisons, crossing borders on foot, on, um, and I'm interested in the ways that people in motion understood themselves, came to understand themselves and their struggles in relationship to other people in the world. So the kind of, the, the key concept that I'm, that I'm presenting in this book is convergence spaces, because I'm interested in how, you know, in ships, in strikes, in study groups, in art collectives, there are different ways that we can kind of still freeze these global forces and see how people were making sense of the world in struggle. And so, you know, I think this is an alternative way to think both about the particular internationalization of capital in the period, but also the way internationalist consciousness is developed uh, from below by people who have been forced on the move. Right, because although, as you say, capitalism may throw people off the land, lead to massive dislocation in their lives, but that doesn't necessarily mean it moves them to radical uh, alternatives to start with, and then ones that link them together with struggles elsewhere. And yet you note that this is a period of this heightened kind of revolutionary internationalism, if we can call it that, of people kind of coming together across all sorts of different divides. To what do you attribute that ability to make those connections and see solidarity with those with whom in other eras people haven't made common cause? Well, Giovanni Arrighi calls this period in the early 20th century, I'm, I'm going to mess up the quote, and it's an important one, but it's the greatest like conflagration of like revolutionary struggles hitherto experienced by the capitalist world economy. I mean, this is just an extraordinary period of struggle. Uh, you know, if you're thinking, you know, both about like customarily understood proletariat struggles, 
um, you know, in, at, at points of production, but to think also about struggles against colonialism, struggles against dispossession, struggles against military occupation, struggles, uh, you know, that I think often fall off our radar, struggles by domestic workers, struggles, uh, you know, by sex workers, by renters. Mike Davis in, um, across several works, you know, really asks us to contend with the fact that this, this turn of the century period did not unfold the way that it had been predicted, right? Where there were just, you know, struggle by, you know, mostly industrial male workers in Western countries. Instead, right, you have, uh, you know, like this kind of chaos on the peripheries of the world system. Rigi talks about different systemic cycles of accumulation, and the way he thinks about this period is uh, a kind of uh, transfer from the British-dominated uh, systemic cycle to one that's dominated by uh, uh, U.S. hegemony, uh, one where the you know the, the U.S. is hegemonic, and. You know, I, I think this is a really compelling way to uh, remind us that one, capitalism doesn't operate the same way in every place and every time, and two, that there are political struggles in terms of who gets to determine the, you know, the, the, the terms, basically, uh, of how capital can be invested and dispensed and managed, and there's a political struggle uh, for that. But there's one really interesting footnote early on in Origi's long 20th century that he kind of gives to his partner and longtime collaborator Beverly Silver, which is, he says, you know, like his interest in that book is really tracking these, the evolutions of these different uh, systemic cycles of capital accumulation, but one key feature that he overlooks is class struggle, right? So Silver's work has been important in multiple ways because she has been trying to track how, you know, class struggle relative to these broader transitions in terms of, you know, hegemonic powers. Um, but I think she's also done some interesting work to help us think about who is overlooked when we think about struggle. And so taking this, uh, you know, th this this comment Arigi makes about like the greatest hitherto, you know, the greatest challenge to the capitalist world system hitherto existing, like means that we have to broaden our expanse of how we're thinking about struggles, capitalist struggle, right? How do we recognize these um, you know, different struggles that take place at sites of extraction, that take place, you know, at, at sites of debt refusal, essentially. I think there's a way that we have come to uh, understand capital and its discontents that impairs us from fully comprehending uh, the massive challenges to the world capitalist system in this period. And I, I, I think a really interesting way uh, to intervene in that problem is to think about how people understood each other, how people saw each other. And I, I you know, I, I feel like rather than making a kind of top-down argument about how capital works and how it, you know, we can understand it, I think there's something much more generative to go from below and to say, well, you know, how are people who are struggling against it, how did they understand it, and how did they necessarily make common cause with other people? Christina Heatherton is my guest. We're discussing her book, Arise, Global Radicalism in the Era of the Mexican Revolution. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So, Christina, you were mentioning earlier that as we try to grapple with these sort of eras and cycles of capitalism, that it's very necessary to sort of see not just those places at the presumed center of the system, but also those on the margins. And I, I wonder if, you know, you place the Mexican Revolution very centrally in your tale. And the Mexican Revolution is often not given credit for being the first major revolution of the 20th century. How do you see its significance for the larger system that you're talking about of, the, of global capitalist accumulation to have that kind of resistance bubbling up in Mexico and then its ramifications so much more broadly than I think we would often get in very nationally conscribed histories of the Mexican Revolution as something that just took place in this limited spot on the globe. 
Around 1914, Ricardo Flores Magón writes this op-ed in, uh, in the paper he and his comrades produced called Regeneración. The article is called The Mexican Manifesto, and I love it. I love teaching it because Magón makes these points in it where he says something to the effect of workers of the world, do you think that we don't understand capital? Do you think that we over whose forests and waters and minerals, the money barons of the earth are warring. Do you think that unless we have read Karl Marx, we cannot understand the exploitation of surplus value, right? It's this extraordinary statement. Uh, Flores Magón makes this point in a number of his writings that there's a way in which, um, you know, uh, Mexican people in particular are not giving credit for the way they understand themselves in the world system and are therefore like our key antagonists in the way that they're like fighting and reframing it. So let me answer your question in a, a, a few different ways. I mean, I feel very strongly that the Mexican Revolution is often described as a contained nationalist event. Uh, and, you know, I mean, building on a number of other scholars, I'm, I'm quite interested in thinking both about the movement of ideas, of capital, of people, of revolutionaries to, you know, more firmly think about it as a global event, as something that did not happen in, you know, a kind of uh, isolated way. Uh, there's also a very important story to talk about the emergence of U.S. hegemony in relationship to Mexico. Uh, you know, and again, there's a number of scholars, including, uh, you know, Jessica Kim, John Mason Hart, who have have done a lot to, you know, feature how critical, uh, you know, U.S. state formation and the specific advance of the U.S. capitalist class happened in relationship to Mexico by the outbreak of the revolution. U.S. financiers owned over 20 percent of Mexico's uh, surface um, they accounted, you know, investments in Mexico accounted for like over a quarter of all U.S. investments. Uh, you know, U.S. entities owned some 80 percent of mineral rights in the country, and they vastly outstripped the holdings of Mexican entities. The first time the U.S. takes on the role of a creditor of another nation happens in Mexico. So, you know, there's all these ways that the kind of uh, rule, not simply like direct colonial rule, but you know, informal, indirect ways of controlling judges and banks and laws, you know, under the threat of military intervention. But, you know, there's, there's a very particular type of rule that the U.S. develops in relationship to Mexico that comes to prefigure the types of debt-driven interventions and, and types of rule uh, throughout the 20th century. So I think, I think the struggles in Mexico, particularly in relationship to U.S. hegemony, are incredibly important. So there, there are those reasons that I, I, I center Mexico and the Mexican Revolution, but there's one more. And, and I, I think the last part of your question were about the ramifications, you know, I, I, I would say for how we think about revolution in general. So part of the reason that I want to focus on internationalism in relationship to the Mexican Revolution is, I mean, it's, it's a kind of present day question. It's how do we think about revolution and internationalism at present? And I think one of the primary fetters is that so much of this history is routed through how we understand the Russian Revolution, which is, of course, extremely important to understand. But, you know, the, the, the conversation can very quickly become mired in other types of proxy conversations when what you're really trying to do is think about the history of revolution. So for me, uncovering the conditions that produced the revolution and that other revolutionaries came, saw, were inspired by, were transformed by, you know, a, a different kind of convergences of revolutionary thought that happened in Mexico. I think, I, I feel like this gives us another route to think about revolutionary traditions, but particularly how internationalism is made, how people understood the conditions of the global capitalist system, their place in it, their struggle in it, that I feel is, gives us something that we can draw from, learn from at present. So I, you know, I, I also have that intention. Indeed. And that centrality of the making of revolution, you know, runs right through the book and, and hence, well, through our conversation as well. But I wanted to ask you, just staying on that question of revolution, the revolutions of the 18th and 19th centuries may seem to us like ancient history, but for the revolutionaries that you're talking about in the early 20th century, the Haitian Revolution of 1791, the revolutions of 1848, the Paris Commune of 1871, 
these actually resonated for them. And so I wanted to ask you, in thinking differently about the long history of revolution, trying to sidestep, as you point out, the impulse to keep reading things backward through the lens of the Russian Revolution. How should we think about the connection of the revolutionaries from the turn of the 20th century to those earlier traditions of revolution? You know, internationalism is often assumed to be a concept uh, like coined by Marx or coined by Marx and Engels. Uh, and, you know, I think it it's... It's very instructive uh, to learn that it was actually a term coined by Jeremy Bentham uh, around the period of the Haitian Revolution. Bentham, uh, you know, perhaps among your listenership might most be well known for uh, being credited with the theory of the Panopticon. Uh, Bentham was trying to figure out um, uh, the, the, the set of laws that governed the laws between different sovereign nations rather than just simply within them, that there's a whole new international system of countries, uh, you know, that have um, either gained new sovereignty or are in the process of struggling for them. And, you know, by this, he's not thinking about Haiti and the Haitian Revolution, <laughs> you know, his writings about internationalism are just replete with the just nastiest, most racist, vile, uh, colonial tropes of about, you know, I mean, he says that um, liberty is the pride of the Englishman and, and uses any number of derogatory terms to talk about African people, people in different uh, uh, colonial countries, and particularly people from Mexico, too, uh, which I talk about in the book. Um, so what I try to do with Bentham is kind of carve out a uh, um, a vision of a liberal internationalism, you know, that, that, uh, you know, Bentham um, and, and, and others in this period of, you know, as I mentioned before, uh, you know, there's a, a new bourgeois economic order coming into being that's, that's displacing the previously existing uh, order of absolute monarchies, um, so, you know, I mean, and it's, it develops in fits and starts, it develops in alignment with, you know, there's, there's, there's not a, a, a singular way that this is coming into being, but there's, you know, the um, liberal internationalism is ascendant at this time. And what I try to talk about in the book is how it is directly counterposed to the abolitionist international. Uh, the, the traditions of internationalism that come uh, from abolitionist struggles, that come from the Haitian Revolution, that come from struggles of, uh, you know, uh, anti-colonial struggles that necessarily tie themselves to abolitionist struggles, uh, you know, that pervade the whole 19th century. The long and short of it is, you know, I'm, um, I'm, I'm very interested in, as you said, how people of the period understood themselves connected to these other revolutionary traditions. So, you know, how, for example, uh, the Haitian Revolution incubated a number of the anti-colonial revolutions in the Western Hemisphere, you know, Haiti offered... Uh, Haiti, Haiti offered a, a, a refuge, a port of freedom. It offered financing and ships. You know, it, 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 it inserted itself in different revolutionary struggles on the condition that if, for example, uh, you know, Venezuela gained its independence from Spain, it could not uh, continue slavery in that country. And so, you know, there's this beautiful way that abolition is this kind of unacknowledged heart of a number of anti-colonial struggles in the uh, in the 18th century, um, and you know I mean people like Julius Scott have done extraordinary work to trace these. He says a common wind of freedom that uh, you know oxygenated people's vision of freedom, people's international uh, vision of struggle in ways that I, I feel like we're continue to grapple with. Mm -hmm, indeed. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. I'm speaking with Christina Heatherton about her book, Arise, Global Radicalism in the Era of the Mexican Revolution, which is published by the University of California Press at againstthegrain.org. You can find a link to that book. 
She is Elting Associate Professor of American Studies and Human Rights at Trinity College and the co-editor of Policing the Planet. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about is, you know, you were describing, in a sense, two traditions of internationalism, a liberal capitalist market-based internationalism, the internationalism of the global reach of capitalism, and then this countervailing internationalism of radical milieus that in many ways I think a lot of us would find striking now, especially after a history of a whole lot of sectarianism in the 20th century, that um, in the early 20th century, people made common cause across all sorts of political, let's say, denominational divisions, anarchists, communists, but also across national lines, across racial lines. I wonder if you could talk about how that was done, because certainly this was not a period in which anyone lacked for divisions, but alliances were made and differences were bridged. How was that done? I think this is a really important question um, and, and something that drives the whole book. You know, it's it's an untidy book in the sense that it doesn't focus on one particular tradition. It You know, I benefit a lot from other studies that have, uh, you know, Dan Labatz has an a incredible study that is soon to become a book about socialist slackers that came to Mexico during the revolution. Um, Margaret Stevens has a, a fascinating study where she thinks a little bit more deliberately about the role of the Communist International in the, uh, you know, in the Caribbean and in Mexico. But the book, as you say, you know, like I'm thinking about narco-syndicalists, I'm thinking about nationalists, I'm thinking about socialists and communists. Um, and, you know, part of what I'm interested in, too, is some of their transformations. So, uh, you know, in chapter two, I tell the story of M.N. Roy, who, uh, you know, was a fierce fighter against British colonialism in India. Um, and through, you know, um, in a unexpected way in the process of trying to secure money and arms and support for an anti-colonial struggle, he ends up in Mexico during the revolution and, uh, you know, has to sort of figure out what to do from there. And in his memoirs, he tells this amazing story about how, you know, what he thought was just a kind of a place he was passing through actually became this crucible for him of internationalism. He was asked by some of his comrades who were um, editors of different newspapers to explain explain the struggle of uh, Indian people against British colonialism. And he has this wonderful line where he says, you know, he's sad to realize that explaining a colonial exploitation to Mexican people in 1917 was like carrying coal to Newcastle, right? And so he, he describes how he came to triangulate his experiences uh, struggling against colonialism in India with the struggle of the Mexican Revolution and the ways in which people uh, were fighting for transformation of, of property rights, of land reform, of the incursion of foreign capital, and the kind of connections that people were making. And he says it was in the Mexican Revolution, the land of his rebirth, he says, that he became an internationalist. And M. N. Roy, you know, I, <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the history of, of communism in this period is really interesting. Um, you know, Ho Chi Minh is one of the founding members of the French Communist Party, Senkatiyama, who, you know, a Japanese revolutionary is one of the founders of the U.S. Communist Party. And it's M.N. Roy from India who becomes one of the founders of the Mexican Communist Party, you know. Uh, and so, um, you know, I, I think what I wanted to do was to be able to say that, you know, these traditions were often more fluid than sometimes are uh, like backward and uh, looking analyses uh, allow them to be, which is to say that, you know, what we might understand as anarchism or socialism and, and communism were not necessarily defined as such or with such hardened boundaries as they were in an earlier period. And the kind of like slippage between different traditions, you know, like, I mean, the Socialist Party essentially incubates the industrial workers of the world before they go in profoundly different directions. But there's, you know, extraordinary kinds of 
conversations and debates uh, in ways that people are thinking through these different traditions. Uh, you know, I mean, I, in Mexico, I look through the issues of Gale's magazine. He was one of these socialist slackers, and he has these debates with Senkatiyama, you know, trying to think about what are the uh, pros and cons of, of communism versus anarchism in Mexico in contribution to a, a, a you know, a, a global anti-capitalist struggle. And I, you know, I, as I say, I think in the conclusion, we, we, we tend to start thinking about radical traditions uh, in a really kind of disciplined way as traditions to which loyalty is pledged rather than traditions that encourage a constant and ruthless, uh, you know, type of questioning and analysis. And, you know, the, the former... Uh, the, the former is much more doctrinaire and dead. The latter, the living tradition, you know, is one that people can be invited into where people, you know, understand that you in alliance with other people trying to make sense of the world that you're in and the struggle that you're involved in is, you know, you having the power to do that, I think is an extraordinarily uh, important starting point for any kind of radical practice that's actually going to make a difference. And maybe as an aside, it's interesting that now I think after a lot of sectarianism of the 20th century, there's much more fluidity again amongst radicals, uh, at least in this country, in terms of what had previously had been very hard and fast divisions. But I wonder if you think that, just going back to the early 20th century, the ability for radicals to find common ground then, despite these various divisions, do you think that part of that was that it was just early enough in the history of the left that factions hadn't hardened? And, you know, there obviously was a great deal of bad blood, the Soviet Union being one very central part of that. I, I feel like we could talk for two hours just about that question. But I let me answer it in a slightly different way, because I, 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 I think one really important facet of this history is its failures, is its defeats. You know, like, I mean, a lot of the book is trying to make sense of, of different defeats. You know, I mean, I say in the, I talk in the conclusion about, you know, where the title comes from, right? I mean, Arise comes from the International, this poem that's written after the, you know, mass slaughter of the Paris Commune. Um, so, you know, the, the book is threaded through with all these questions, not only about the potential for people to develop an internationalist consciousness in, you know, these, uh, you know, these, these convergent spaces and these ways which might fall off our map if we're only thinking about kind of traditional sectarian histories. But it's also very interested in how people were products of the same circumstance who came to different conclusions, right? Because, you know, like the conditions were certainly ripe. This is a high tide of, of, of revolutionary struggle and radical thinking. And, and, and yet, you know, there's enormous defeat that doesn't just happen from without, right? I mean, I think sometimes there's a, there's a, a romantic impulse to emphasize just the crushing of different revolutionary movements as if if they had been allowed to flourish you know on their own everything would have happened perfectly but every single chapter in this book is attendant to the ways in in you know the 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 fetters that came uh you know with these kind of uh revolutionary possibilities the seductions i i say following uh, w.e.b du bois of the new imperialism the ways in which people were seduced to think that they could uh you know tie their own fates to the the you know, the, the development of global capital in this period, that they could adopt the same kinds of racisms and colonial mentalities um, uh, and, and, and benefit accordingly. And so every chapter, I, I, I try to be pretty careful in, in talking both about what I think is an extraordinarily overlooked history that I feel like gives us a sort of permissiveness to, to, to think about uh like radical thinking and theory production, you know, in a much more open-ended way. But, you know, everything is also very much tempered with a kind of cautionary tale of this is how people in the same circumstance sold each other out or in the story of Leavenworth Penitentiary, you know, like I tell the story of Roy Tyler, uh, a, a black Houston mutineer, uh, you know, who... 
essentially help the guards uh, uh, detain uh, a, a, you know, a Mexican prisoner who had been a, a like a, a fierce protector of Ricardo Flores Magón and the Mexican revolutionaries in that prison. And, the, you know, I mean, the story is like, I, I try to tell this, I try to kind of like re retell what I thought was an extraordinary story of all these different radicals, you know, socialists, pacifists, nationalists, communists, uh, like anarchists coming together and teaching each other in this prison but the story ends with these prisoners, you know, who, who by, you know, for all intents and purposes have, should have everything in common, should be able to make common cause with each other. And instead, you know, in this, the violent place of the prison become enemies. And I, you know, and, 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 I, and I feel like the kind of cautionary tale of the book is that then is now we have to take seriously the fetters to uh, any kind of international solidarity understand them organize against them not take them as natural you know as Du Bois said they were they were built they can be undone Christina Heatherton is my guest the book is Arise Global Radicalism in the Era of the Mexican Revolution I'm Sasha Lilly this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio well let's talk more about Leavenworth Penitentiary which you just mentioned because one of the things that did allow for the alliances that were made and the successes that did happen, much of that happened because the way that capital and the state operated at that time threw people together. Um, not only did it fuel migrations across borders, but also, as in the case of Leavenworth Penitentiary, locked people up together in strange places, such as Kansas. Can you tell us about how incarcerated radicals came together there around the period of World War One, and what flourished during that time against all odds? Against all odds, definitely. After promising not to bring the country into war, uh, you know, uh, the U.S. entered World War One, and what followed were a series of uh, pieces of federal legislation to uh, discourage any kind of political dissent against the war. Namely, uh, the Espionage and the Sedition Act were two key pieces of, uh, you know, federal legislation that made it a federal crime to, uh, you know, promote disloyalty to the government and the war. And under these pieces of federal legislation, a whole swath, I mean, every radical who was operating in some fashion in the U.S., uh, you know, was caught up under it. I mean, th these, these laws were so extreme that if you go back to the archives, you know, they're like people could, the, the pretext for arrest could be that you, you had a pamphlet on you, you had a a piece of paper announcing some kind of strike. Somebody could have given you something. There's a story of a man who was arrested because he had a flag lapel pin that in the course of the day had turned upside down. And this was seen as a police officer's sign of his disloyalty. So it's an extreme, you know, I mean, this is a, a period of just kind of a mass hysteria against political dissent. And uh, you know, Leavenworth Penitentiary as the oldest of the federal penitentiaries becomes this central contradictory node. So, uh, you know, you have um, members of the industrial workers of the world who oppose the draft. They're all incarcerated there. You have socialists. Uh, I mean, there's a wonderful story I didn't get a chance to tell in the book about the Green Corn Rebellion, you know, socialist farmers who end up there at the same time. You have communists. You have members of the uh, Communist Party. William Z. Foster is there, you know, playing baseball, writing columns about jazz. A number of uh, the key Mexican revolutionary figures who were in essence in exile from the Mexican government end up in Leavenworth Penitentiary. And Ricardo Flores Magón, you know, one of the key agitators of the revolution, ends up dying in Kansas in this prison. So I was interested in that story of how he got there and what he was doing there. And in the process of going through the records, uh, you know, I uncovered this extraordinary um site where as one of these uh, Department of uh, Bureau of Investigation files called it a University of Radicalism because there was this problem of a lot of military uh, a, a lot of soldiers 
a, a lot of people going to the prison, uh, being arrested, sent to the prison, and then they were coming out as organizers. So I had to make sense of what was happening there. And in the records of the prison, in the memoirs that people wrote, in the articles, uh, you know, in the letters they wrote to the warden, you know, I uncovered this just extraordinary story of how people were organizing and actually educating each other. There was actually a university that the prisoners built uh, you know, in the prison where for five or six nights a week, they were teaching each other. They were giving lectures about radical theory. They were t teaching language classes in the process of teaching language. They were talking about the history and radical struggles of the different countries they were coming from. Uh, you know, they also like Leavenworth, as I mentioned, had a very interesting labor regime. One of the reasons why it was continually funded and supported as a key federal penitentiary was because so much of the labor was done by the prisoners themselves. You know, even Henry Ford sends a film crew to film it because he thinks this is a great model for how work, how production should happen. But that it is so the, you know, the prisoners at Leavenworth, I mean, this is still a prison, but they have a remarkable degree of control over different facets. And so, you know, in The Liberator, for example, there's a story about how, you know, the Bible that is issued to the prisoner is actually like printed on site and a number of the radicals, you know, get into that printing plant. They gut some of the Bible and they put the Communist Manifesto inside. So when the prison's, you know, uh, delivering all of these Bibles, they're actually delivering the Communist Manifesto to everybody. And so, you know, I trace the kind of like, you know, there's, there's a newspaper that the prisoners write. There are strikes, there are parades that the prisoners hold. Uh, and I mean, this is just a really, I, I think the, the idea of convergence space really came into view for me by looking through these records to be able to say, well, this kind of upends a lot of what we assume about the period. You know, I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, I mean, it's in a grotesque place of confinement, but, you know, um, people are figuring ways to make sense of the different radical traditions that they're a part of, you know, in order to like understand and, and, and fight against the conditions of their confinement and, and try to understand what that means for a broader struggle. So, so that's the story of Leavenworth. Well, and it leads one to wonder then, what role did cultural production play in sustaining movements and linking revolutionaries, not simply those who you know, were thrown together in a, a prison, but more broadly in this period? Yeah, I mean, I, um, I, I mean, you know, then as now and always, like culture has an absolutely pivotal role to play. Uh, and I talk a lot about this in the sixth chapter where I'm trying to think about um, Elizabeth Catlett, uh, you know, who was an African-American artist who spent most of her uh, life and career in Mexico. She's, you know, um, a, you know, according to her biographer, Melanie Herzog, like one of the most important artists of the 20th century, uh, you know, is a sculptor, a printmaker, and uh, she was a part of an internationalist art collective called the, uh, the Taller de Grafica Popular. Uh, and in that story, I try to tell, uh, you know, I, I try to give a sense of all the different cultural spaces that Catlett came from, that produced her, that she helped produce, the Southside Community Art Center in Chicago, uh, the George Washington Carver School in Harlem, where, uh, you know, she, she taught a course called How to Make a Dress which was the most popular course at this school where she came into contact with the black domestic workers in Harlem. And, you know, I tell the story about how in the process of, tr of trying to, in, you know, in, instruct people how to make a dress, she comes to understand so much about the lives and struggles of black domestic workers in Harlem in this period. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, I think there's a, a, a beautiful uh, way in which cultural struggles are central to, uh, you know, uniting and prefiguring the types of, uh, you know, political struggles that happen in the world. Um, but I, I, would, I would also say that I think the question of culture has other dimensions for me. Um, you know, I'm very moved by Peter Stallybrass's writings on the commodity fetish. And to make a very long argument short, he says, we, we sometimes forget that this is a joke that Marx made, you know, like 
the uh you know the fetish is this derogatory term developed under colonialism to disparage cultures for uh, awarding meaning to objects to you know totems and masks and medicine bags you know the 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 uh, absurdity that there was a system of meaning that exceeded uh you know or that came before a colonial order and 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 a, and a capitalist system of value so you know what Marx is saying in his critique of the commodity fetish isn't just that there's something absurd with commodities, uh, you know, having a primacy of place in our life. It's it's the absurdity that objects only have meaning. Uh, their their entire life world is defined, uh, you know, in relationship to their exchange value, to the world of capitalist value production. You know, I, I feel like every episode of the Antiques Roadshow, you see this, right? Someone's like, oh, this is my great, great grandfather's and it has this personal meaning. And then someone goes, that's great. It's worth $2, right? So, you know, there's, let me say it this way, you know, like every chapter in the book is about the making of something, right? How to make a university, how to make a dress. And it starts with how to make a rope. And I'm really interested in, in thinking about the always existing struggle between the objects circulating within the life world of capital. How do you think about the commodity of the rope? And, and how do you think about the world, the life worlds of, uh, you know, of, of meaning, of culture, of struggle that are also interwoven into those commodities. And so the very contradictions of the capitalist system can be understood in how we, we come to make and experience, you know, these, these different objects. So, I mean, the question of culture for me is like, it's, it's, it's both something that I think I, I think about explicitly in the book through the story of Catlett and the various artists, you know, who made extraordinary contributions to culture. But in a broader way, I'm also thinking about cultural struggles as, you know, a way to recognize how, uh, you know, we interact in our own life worlds, you know, that exceed the capitalist system. And this ultimately is the basis for an anti-capitalist sentiment. Well, let me end with this question. We, we live in a time of heightened capital accumulation on a global scale, which, you know, one could see as parallel in some ways to the era that you write about in Arise of unfettered flows of capital and labor circling the globe. But of course, there are differences. And one of them is actually maybe the degree to which capitalism has extended itself. And in many ways, the liberal internationalism that you mentioned earlier, this, you know, internationalism of finance and of markets has triumphed in a way that revolutionary internationalism has not. Is it possible to draw lessons then from that earlier era, the era of radicalism in the early 20th century or are the time periods too distinct there's something kind of ostentatious about taking the title of this book from the first word of the uh, international but i situate it in a longer history of other people who have plumbed the lyrics of that song to try to make meaning of the revolutionaries uh, revolutionary struggles before them in different periods uh you know, so famously, I think people, a lot of people forget this, Wretched of the Earth comes from the second line of the song, Arise ye prisoners of starvation, arise ye wretched of the earth. Uh, you know, and, and there Fanon is trying to think, you know, I mean, he says in the beginning, how is Marxism stretched when it's uh, in the colonies, but he's thinking about anti-colonial struggles in Algeria and beyond. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned in the book, and I thought this was really profound, Dorothy Healy, uh, who's a figure I talk about, she's a communist organizer in California, when she left the Communist Party, she did an oral history with Maurice Isherman, and she said, you know, if I ever wrote a memoir, I would want to call it Traditions Chains Have Bound Us, so a, a slight change from the original uh, lyric. And she makes this point that when radical traditions, uh, you know, are not constantly uh, reassessed, you know, ruthlessly interrogated, uh, you know, when they're not these living practices, when they're dead, when they're not traditions that free, when they're traditions that bind, they're no longer revolutionary traditions. I see myself in the tradition of a number of figures who, you know, are, are continually doing just what Healy encourages us to do, to think, to go back 
to these original traditions that we are unavoidably tied to, <laughs> but try to think about a way out uh, for the present moment. And, you know, I mean, like as Stuart Hall says, like there are no guarantees. Um, but all we can do is like think and learn and try to, to make sense of how people understood the conditions they were in and, you know, and, and hope for something better and fought together for something better and didn't let the kind of cynicism, the, you know, the, this absurdity that the life world of capital is the only world that we can exist in, you know, to, to, to let that become hegemonic. The reason this system is so violent, the reason it's so racist, the reason it's so sexist and homophobic and transphobic is because it's not stable. I say this in relationship to the Haitian Revolution. You know, we have to think about the forces arrayed against us not as signs of stability, but as signs of a regime aware of its own illegitimacy, right? The violence that's enacted upon us in, you know, like overt ways and the kind of like implicit ways that I've talked about, you know, in, in other works is directly proportional to the illegitimacy of this regime. So things might seem hopeless and, you know, I mean, it, it is a kind of <laughs> like U.S. characteristic to be maybe irrationally optimistic about things. But I, you know, I don't come from a kind of hollow optimism of like Mary Poppins one day, you know, we're going to just win and we'll, you know, take our umbrellas and fly off into the sky. But I do, I have absolute belief that we inherit a tradition of thinking of, uh, you know, understanding ourselves in relationship to, to, to different traditions of struggle. The future is not foreclosed for better or for worse. You know, all we can do is work and try together and fight like hell. <laughs> and on that note, Christine Heatherton, thank you so much. Sasha, I've been looking forward to this for a very long time. Thank you so much. Christina Heatherton is Elting Associate Professor of American Studies and Human Rights at Trinity College. In this hour, we've been talking about her book, Arise, Global Radicalism in the Era of the Mexican Revolution, which is published by the University of California Press at againstthegrain.org. You can find a link to that book. She's also co-editor of Policing the Planet, Why the Policing Crisis Led to Black Lives Matter. And you've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune in again next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. Please visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio and a way to sign up for our podcast. And you can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio or follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. Radio Against.